from Green Biz Group, welcome to Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Green Biz events. I'm Joel McCower. In our society today, you can't just look at one value system. You've got to look at the broad range. You have to value efficiency, but you also have to value animal welfare. Wayne Paselli is CEO of the Humane Society of the United States. He spoke with GreenBiz editorial director Heather Clancy at the GreenBiz conference in Phoenix, Arizona in February 2017 about creating a humane economy, the role of companies and consumers in transforming the lives of animals worldwide, and how this disruption can actually drive business value. Let's listen in. So a little known fact, before I wanted to be a journalist, I really wanted to be a veterinarian. So I am really excited about this next conversation. And by way of introducing Wayne Pacelli to the, Wayne Pacelli to the stage, I wanted to read a little quote, um, one of the book endorsements that he had in his Humane Economy book. And I think you'll appreciate who it comes from. There's a coming disruption in business affecting industries from agriculture to pharmaceuticals to media, and it's being driven by new technologies, human ingenuity, and the new momentum of the animal protection movement. In the humane economy, Wayne Pacelli powerfully explores the changes already underway and ahead. A critically important read for anyone who cares about business success or animals, or like so many of us, both. And I think you'll be interested to know that came from Jack Welch. So by way of introducing Wayne Pacelli to uh, the stage. Thank you. You know, I, I was wondering, uh, you know, the, the book that you've written and, and that um, I'm happy to share the information for afterwards, uh, The Humane Economy, I'm wondering if there was a tipping point in, in the, the catalyst that, that, that caused you to write it. Something that the business world did where, where you thought, ah, they're finally getting it. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, we live in a capitalist economy and so much of what happens in our society is a derivative of the work of businesses. And I think we saw, when we took a big picture view of our human relationship with animals, we saw that there are billions of animals caught up within different sectors of our economy. Mm -hmm. Food and agriculture, which is obviously hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, testing and science, wildlife management, entertainment. And I think it was just a building sort of momentum, but my book is a positive treatment because there were so many success stories. I mean, when McDonald's said that it was going to only procure eggs from farms that were cage-free farms, or when SeaWorld said that they're going to end the breeding of orcas, or Ringling Brothers said it's going to stop the use of elephants and traveling acts, or Walmart adopted the five freedoms of farm animal welfare, those for me as a lifelong advocate, I started an animal welfare group in the 1980s when I was a college student, those were not things I could have imagined right. at that point to have right. the biggest corporations in America say, hey, we think that it's actually going to be better for business to incorporate animal welfare sensibilities into our business model. And you mentioned McDonald's. Was there any other company that, that jumps to mind? That I mean, does this, the book is full of case studies on, on these things? or I'd say it's, you know, it's a narrative that you know, really sweeps broadly. I wouldn't say they're case studies, but I mean, in the food industry, McDonald's became a big catalyst when I, I actually 
had an encounter with Carl Icahn. And he called me out of the blue in my, in my office and said he wanted to help on animal welfare. And it was just at that time that we were having discussions with McDonald's. And I said, I could use your help in talking to McDonald's. I mean, you know uh, how to talk to corporations in the United States. And, right. and we opened up a discussion and McDonald's agreed to stop sourcing pork from operations that can find the sows in two foot by seven foot cages called gestation crates. I don't know if any of you have seen these images, but if you have a ceiling level view of one of these large industrial farms, you have pigs side by side by side, row after row after row. And the sows are in these crates that are, these are three or four or 500 pound animals. They can't turn around. All they can do is take a half step forward, half step back. They're in there for three years. And for McDonald's as a you know, pretty low cost, high, high value purveyor of you know, fast food, this was a signal to the rest of the industry that this could be done, that it wasn't pie in the sky. And since that time, hundreds of companies, almost every big name branded food has gotten on board with that campaign. Are you, are you happy with the rate of change? I mean, like with the rate of change of what you're seeing or? I mean, I, I think, you know, what, what we're trying to achieve is a new social and economic relationship with animals in our society. Right. Before a long time, a lot of people viewed animals as just instrumentalities. You can even think of our language as an indicator of how we viewed them. In a research setting, they might be called tools for research. On a factory farm, they might be called units of production. In a wildlife management context, they may be called game to be harvested on a sustained yield basis. When you depersonalize animals, and you, you also kind of deny their sentience, their capacity to feel and suffer, you turn them into an object, it clears the way for you to do lots of terrible things. And we in our society are deeply disconnected from what's happening to animals. Most of us don't go to the farms right. that source the pork and the eggs and the other animal products. We don't go to the laboratories where we test chemicals or pesticides or cosmetics on animals. We're very removed from it. And I think for me, for so many years, there was little progress. Now we're in a period of punctuated change. I think the current political alignment is going to present some challenges for us, uh, but I don't see the broader effort slowing down. Well, it, it, in, and we'll get, you know, I don't go back to them in a moment, but um, you, know, how, you mentioned the need to balance sort of, actually, one point. By every measure, this is a quote, something you once said, by every measure, life will be better when human satisfaction and need are no longer built upon the foundation of an animal cruelty. Can you elaborate on I me? Mean, do you really think that humans were trying to be <clears throat> cruel to animals? No, no, no. I, I think, you know, really it's almost in my lifetime that we saw a huge change in agriculture. I mean, agriculture has been around since we domesticated animals, and obviously wolves were the first animals who kind of moved into our social environment, and we got dogs out of that 30,000 years ago. But the farm animals came about 10,000 years ago. And for those millennia, we humans raised animals for food, but they had access to pasture. Animals could feel sunlight on their backs. They could feel soil beneath their feet. They were going to be killed, but not every day preceding that had to be miserable and filled with privation for them. What happened around 1960 is we adopted industrial-style production techniques to agriculture. We moved animals from outdoor settings and we put them in large windowless warehouses and we immobilized them. Mm -hmm. And that was not designed to be cruel. 
that was designed to be efficient, but we, what we did is we subordinated our other values in society. We subordinated our values about animal welfare, often about environmental protection, and I think in our society today, you can't just look at one value system. You've got to look at the broad range. You have to value efficiency, but you also have to value animal welfare. So, and, and, and so I'll push back a little bit, not, not that I want to be, you know, I'm just yeah. playing devil's advocate here. We have a very real need to feed a lot more people. So, and, and so therefore that, that sort of interest in being more efficient is very understandable. So how do you balance, you know, what way can you balance that? Yeah, I mean, the whole history of our human experience in terms of food and agriculture, and even preceding that, has been one where we were concerned about scarcity, not enough food, famine. Mm -hmm. This is something that drove our 20th century approach to agricultural production and why we landed in the realm of factory farming. But now with technology and innovation the way it is, I mean, we can produce food and not have to sacrifice our other values. And when I was a young person, Francis Moore LePay wrote a book called Diet for a Small Planet in the early 1970s. And she said that animals are protein factories in reverse. They take enormous inputs of plant matter and turn those many pounds of plant matter into a small amount of animal protein. 12 pounds of grain to produce one pound of beef, eight pounds of grain to produce one pound of pork, four pounds of grain to produce one pound of chicken. If we ate more plant foods directly rather than indirectly through animals, we could feed more people at a, at a lower cost. I mean, we are producing corn and soybeans for animals to eat at this point. That also means we're, we're using so much more water, we're using many more pesticides. So if you talk about sustainability, a meat-centered diet where the average American is eating 220 pounds of terrestrial animals a year, again, not counting the fish, which are coming from aquaculture, but also being gathered from the wild, often in terribly unsustainable ways, that is not a good plan for sustainability. And what I say in the book is that I'm not just looking at animal welfare. I'm looking when we have good animal welfare outcomes, we typically have better outcomes for the environment. We have better outcomes for building a civil society. You know, the work that I do at the Humane Society, I see in domestic violence situations to move to a different realm. When there's animal cruelty in the household, there's almost always child abuse or spousal abuse. One day it's a spouse, another day it's a child, another day it's an animal. So much of this is about the misuse of power. Right. And when we have these terrible exploitative practices where we are you know, leveraging our power, we see bad outcomes. And factory farming is one bad outcome. I mean, it was efficient, it is efficient at some narrow measure. But when the government's subsidizing it and we're polluting the water and we're applying pesticides and we have so much animal cruelty, we, if we're serious-minded people, have to take a look at that. And I think all of us have responsibilities in our daily lives as well as in our corporate sphere to take an honest look at these issues. So link the link improving the conditions at a factory farm to the environmental impact. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's really the inputs. It's, it's that ratio of, of, you know. Is it the fertilizer? I mean, like, tell it's, me. It's all those. It's and the, there's plenty of case studies showing yeah. that when you address that, there's a, there's a community. So I mean, can you if give you, me one? If you drive through Illinois or Iowa and you see all those corn and soybeans, those are being grown for animals, not for people. And a small amount of that is grown for people directly. And that means all that land is in cultivation, which means habitat is destroyed. It means there's that much more runoff, which is 
you know, adding that runoff load into our streams and other waterways. I mean, you have pesticide applications that are coursing through the environment. You have all of the, the energy inputs, and then you have the direct uh, release of methane from the animals. I mean, animal agriculture is the second biggest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions in the world. I mean, we raise nine billion animals in the United States for food. The average American eats 30 animals a year. So if you think of 320 million animals times 30 animals that each of us eats a year, on average, that's nine billion. If you think of 77 billion animals globally, again, discounting the fish, which is many billions more, there are seven billion people on the planet, there are 77 billion domesticated animals that we're raising for slaughter each year. We live on a small planet with 30% of the surface area is land. Yeah. Much of that land is rock and ice and desert. The habitable portion is limited. If we're gonna be good stewards and custodians, we have to think about the biggest industries and all of these inputs. And if we can feed ourselves more healthfully, and eating a plant-based diet, is, or a more plant-based diet, is, is certainly a healthy option. It's better for the environment, it's better for animals. I mean, what's the bad side of that story? We're going to uh, ask the virtual and live audience for questions. If you have them, send them to the GreenBiz17 hashtag, or directly to Elaine is here. Um, I have several more, though. Yeah. Um, the the uh, impact of the cage tree movement has not always been a po the, 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 the feedback on that movement has not always been positive. Because um, you, you referenced the McDonald's, but there's been some evidence that that, that approach might also be problematic, or at least we're, we're, we're discovering what, what the, the limits of it might be. Can you address that? Well, sure. I mean, anytime you're raising animals, and you're transporting them and slaughtering them, there are gonna be potential welfare issues. I mean, a lot of people would say that killing the animal itself is obviously an animal welfare compromise circumstance. But we're a pluralistic organization. We're not saying you've gotta be a vegetarian. We want people to think about their choices, but there's always a pushback from the conventional industry when you try to change something. So there are voices out there within industry who have been defending the conventional systems that say, oh, well, if you give animals more room, they're gonna be more injuries, they're gonna be moving they're gonna more. attack each other. They're gonna be attacking each other. I mean, we could live our lives in a closet and therefore we'd never be hit by a car on the road, right? So when you give animals an opportunity to move, there are gonna be some risks. And yes, they're gonna have social interactions, but animals have done fine for a long time. Chickens out in a barnyard, they don't kill each other, um, you know, left and right. They are herd species or flock species, whether they're pigs or, or chickens. So there's always going to be a pushback. I mean, I remember testifying against, you know, when it was legal, cockfighting. I mean, people said, oh my God, these birds want to fight. You know, they, there's always an excuse for animal cruelty. And there's always an excuse for a lot of practices that we now look in the rearview mirror of history and say, how could we ever have even engaged in a debate on these subjects? I mean, you look at the history of our country, you know, we had chattel slavery for 80 years. We denied the women, women the right to vote for 140 years. We had civil rights struggles, you know, that continue, but we're certainly at an apex in the 1950s. I mean, you look back and say, what was going on? What sort of collective unconsciousness was exhibited to allow those things to persist for decades or more than a century? And I think we're gonna look at our relationship with animals in 2050 or 2070 and say, oh my God, 
how could we have just thought of these creatures as things? And how could we have killed billions in the most you know, inhumane ways and sat around and allowed it to happen for so long. So, you know, your book is a lot, of, it says economy, which means yeah. there's a business opportunity. So it's not just, it's not just changing the existing model, it's new models of new businesses, new opportunities built around this movement. So tell me what some of those are. Well, I think in the broader sense, I argue in the book, it's part of my core thesis, that doing right for animals, doing right for the environment, is not a sacrifice any longer. You're not gonna do without. It's actually an economic opportunity because the value system of animal welfare, protecting the environment, is now part of our culture. It's part of our ethos as a society. So a company that's taking shortcuts morally, whether it's on the environment or animals, is actually gonna be at risk. Protests, shareholder resolutions, all sorts of you know, litigation. When you clean up your act as a company, and forthrightly advance your business model and produce goods or services consistent with the value systems of your customers, that's a tremendous opportunity. And I think that's what so many businesses that we work with realize in this day and age. Are there new technologies, new, oh, new yeah. complete, like a, a, some plant-based food companies? Or well, the movies, think of the movies. You know, if you look at old westerns and have the horses, you know, that are running across, you know, the landscape, and then the horses go down. I mean, they were tripped. There was tripwire. Or you have wild animals and, you know, now Clint, CGI now. Right? Yeah, now you have computer generated imagery that's incredible. So you look at Planet of the Apes. I go in, in the book in detail on, on the most recent Planet of the Apes movies and how they actually have human actors in white bodysuits with sensors all over them. The humans are acting like the apes. And then they impose the ape images on them for this vivid filmmaking. That is, that is extraordinary. I mean, it's so authentic and it's real. And you don't have to you know, wrangle a chimp or a gorilla who could be dangerous on the set and that it's dangerous for them. And CGI is an incredible example. But I went to laboratories that are doing testing for chemicals and cosmetics to the National Institutes of Health, to private labs at the Weiss Institute at Harvard. They're doing organ on a chip. They're doing cell culture programs, doing different things at the molecular and systems level that are allowing us to test thousands and thousands of chemicals and compounds that are now, we're poisoning animals in incredible numbers, but actually testing very few of the chemicals. These new methods are gonna be so much better for our society. So that's where technology is liberating us. Right. And I think this is a huge you know, argument that I have in the book that it's human creativity and ingenuity that's going to be a pathway for reform that if we identify a moral problem, we can then have a solution that is a product of our really creative thinking, okay. and that's what's happening. Elaine, I am sure that you have questions, and I think we have time for one of them, oh, so make it good. Which one, this one or this one? <laughs> There's so many. I'm sure there are. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so um, one of them that I, well, there's a, there's a bunch of themes, um, but, maybe one, the only one we have uh, time for is um, just trying to help us connect the dots between sustainability and animal welfare, especially in that animal welfare is often an emotional issue and things like grass-fed beef and all that stuff, it's a little bit um, harder to connect the dots for sustainability folks in terms of advocating for those kinds of things. What are your thoughts? Well, I think, you know, when we're talking about the use of animals in movies, that's not a big sustainability no. issue. But when we're talking about the use of animals in agriculture, when you're talking about 77 billion animals worldwide, I mean, I don't think there are many dots to connect. I mean, this is so closely tied to 
the health of our environment, the use of water, the use of soil, uh, the use Fertilizer. of crops, pesticides. I mean, everything. This is a gigantic industry. It's a, you know, it's a trillions of dollars in terms of the global uh, economic activity. So I, I think that it's it's one of the central features of our human existence is agriculture. I mean, before we had agriculture, we were hunters and gatherers. I mean, you could argue that domestication was one of the real tipping points in the history and prehistory of humans. And now we've got a circumstance when we've got seven billion people who are eating 10 to 30 animals a year. Is that sustainable? Yeah. And is it humane? Is it an appropriate use of resources? And I think these are some of the questions that I grapple with. And I say in the book that so many major corporations are working to solve these problems. And they must, it's in their interest to do so, and they're doing it in, in increasingly creative ways. Yeah, the methane thing is obviously huge too. You mentioned that earlier. Elaine, one more question, and then we're gonna wrap up. Yeah, a lot of questions related to alternative meat, um, mm -hmm. like Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods, Cricket Flour, et cetera. Um, are they on the right track, and how likely could they scale in a meat-eating society? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, I, I think of it in some ways like computing, right? I mean, my freshman year in college, I typed my papers on a typewriter, and then it was word processors the second year, and the first attempts with computing were a little slow, a little clunky, a little cumbersome, but you knew that it was, you were part of a revolution that was at work. And I think if we identify the meat industry in terms of this factory farming side of it as a real moral problem, we can forge solutions. And Beyond Meat, which the Humane Society is an investor in, along with a lot of you know, really far-sighted and foresighted investors, is a product, I mean, I've eaten the Beyond Burger, and it's been a while since I've eaten meat, uh, been more than 30 years, but I tried to go back to my library of taste buds, and it sure seemed pretty authentic to me, and a lot of my meat eater friends said it was pretty great, and I think they're just gonna get better and better and better. So I think you're gonna have cell culture meat, and I think you're gonna be able to fabricate plants to taste like meat, have the same taste and texture, all the protein, all the vitamins, none of the fat and cholesterol. We're getting kicked off the stage, darn! But thank you, thanks to Wayne. Thank you very much. <laughs> You've been listening to Wayne Pacelli, CEO of the Humane Society of the United States in conversation with Heather Clancy at the GreenBiz 17 conference. For more Center Stage podcasts, go to greenbiz.com slash centerstage. And while you're there, tune into GreenBiz 350, our weekly podcast covering the news and the people behind the news in sustainable business and clean technology. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>